You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is an extraordinary figure. He served in World War II, uh, at which time he was a bomber crew member and survived 66 bombing missions over Europe. After the end of the war, he joined the agency in 1948, keeping in mind it was only formed in 1947. And he was one of the founders of what was then known as the National Photographic Interpretation Center. These were the folks who looked at the overhead photographs that were taken by aircraft flying around the Soviet Union and other areas of the world. And Dino, as he's known among his friends, really lived through that period when overhead photography came to a very, very fine science, which we all know today as the overhead satellites. But in those days, we didn't have that. One of the early developments was, of course, the U-2, the SR-71, and eventually the satellites. Do you know, when you were in World War II, were you, in fact, even at that time, a photographic analyst? Is that the work you were involved in? No, it was by accident. Uh, My commanding officer got a new batch of cameras, and he was griping that they, they weren't working properly. Well, when I was uh, growing up and going to uh, college, I, met, I worked 80 hours in a dairy, and I bought an American Leica camera. And I spent an additional $2 and got the little uh, view, uh, not, what, uh, a viewfinder? Not a viewfinder, light meter. Oh, light meter, yeah. So the... Uh, so what I did is I looked at the, the cameras were set for all day long, and they weren't taking uh, account of the fact that there, the difference in, in light during the whole day. So I would set the cameras whenever we would go up. And so I got, I was bringing back very good photographs, and, uh, but 
the thing about it is when you flew photographic missions, you didn't get credit for going home. You had to drop a bomb. So what happened was, in addition to flying the 66 bombing missions, the colonel would call me, the commanding officer would call me and said, all right, Brucey, let's go take some pictures. And I would bring back good pictures simply because of the $2 light meter and setting the cameras to the, to the light of the day. And so that got me interested in, in uh, I was interested in photography and I made a little bit of money when I was in college taking pictures at, at the ends around the, uh, around the campus. But I really got into it uh, in terms of, in those days, uh, you had to set the uh, stops and speeds and, and lo and behold, uh, I, they got super double X film and I was getting results from it that nobody else was getting simply because I was using a $2 light meter to check the cameras each time, each time we went up. Now you, you joined the agency in 1948. Did you join the agency as a photo expert of any kind? No, I joined the uh, agency as an international economist. I studied under Ted Atchison, Dean Atchison's brother. And uh, I had all kinds of offers uh, to go overseas. I had an uh, offer from the FBI. I had an offer from uh, Caterpillar Tractor and number others because this was the Marshall Plan was coming in. And uh, so Ted Atchison, Dr. Atchison said, go down and see. There's a, there's a fellow down in, uh, in, in the M building and, uh, and talk to him. So the fellow uh, uh, talked to me and he said, yeah, we'd like to have you. And I said, well, what's my job? And he said, we'd like for you to set up an industrial register. You know all about target folders. Uh, we'd like for you to become, uh, to create targets folders on the Soviet industries. So I became an expert on Soviet industries and then I moved up. Uh, I was a branch chief and then I was uh, also selected by the agency to represent the agency at a number of conferences. And there's where I met Arthur Lundahl, the, uh, later to become the director of NPIC. I liked him and he liked me. And he told me, he said, uh, uh, I'm getting involved in photo interpretation. I'd like to have you as my intelligence officer. So that's how I started. That was an extraordinary step. I might mention NPIC, by the way, were the initials for the National Photographic Interpretation Center. Right. And once you became the intelligence officer, in NPIC, that was really the launch of a very long and very productive career. Well, the way it started, though, the, uh, the executive officer called me in, and he said, I'm going to make you responsible for the briefing boards and the notes. He said, if you get your boss's ass in a sling, he said, I'll fire yours. He had been dean of men at Dartmouth, and he had been a Marine major, and he could talk to you up here or down here. And most of the time, it was down here. And so uh, I made sure, he said, I'm going to get you the same clearances that Lundahl has, that your boss has. And he said, uh, "And you better not let me down. And so I created the briefing boards and the notes for uh, clear up to the time when I retired. And, and when, when did you actually retire? I, I really retired in 1981. And, but then the agency called me back to get ready for the newer photographic systems. And the agency also called me back to help write the histories 
of the DDSNT. I helped write the history of the DDSNT. And then I helped write the history of the various photo satellites. And then I wrote the history of NPIC. So you were deeply involved, of course, in those developments as well as during the history. Yes. And Dino, I'm just going to mention uh, to our listeners that uh, you have come today to the museum on the occasion of publishing another book on this period called Eyes in the Sky, Eisenhower, the CIA, and the Cold War. And of course, you lived this period which was the great breakthrough in the Cold War, and that was the development and refinement of overhead surveillance, overhead photography. And it was the U-2, SR-71, and later the satellites. Could I take you back just through some of the highlights of that period, which actually involved the interpretation of overhead photography? Let me just start with something uh, that was called the bomber gap in the 1950s. Can you just summarize what that was? What was the issue? Well, the Soviets displayed uh, a new bomber. But then they did something that uh, they would fly that bomber periodically over Moscow. But then they had different BART numbers, different number on the nose of the plane. So it would indicate that the Soviets had at least 20 to 25 of these. And, uh, but what we didn't know was that the, that was the same plane, or, or maybe a couple of planes. And then the Air Force started saying that the Soviets are ahead of us. They're building more bombers in it than we do. And you had nothing to confirm or deny it. The, 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 the estimates uh, were, were wrong. Now that I look back, they were guesses. But they were fueled by the military-industrial complex. They were fueled by the, uh, the senators like uh, Stu Symington, uh, the senator from Washington, the, uh, Richard Russell. All of these men had, had aircraft plants in their, in their areas, and they, they, were, they were building, uh, beating the drums that this is true, this is true. And uh, this bothered Eisenhower, it really did, that we had no information. Now, Eisenhower was used to having both communications intelligence and photographic intelligence at, 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 uh, at his headquarters, and now he came to the agency, he had neither. And so the bomber gap, when, uh, when we flew the 13 missions, uh, 13 uh, long-range bombers and only found one, and we knew that there was another airfield that had, uh, later we found that it had uh, 38, and the, another, still another airfield that had 12, instead of having the 250 that the Air Force was, was saying, the Soviets only had about 60 bombers. And that came up during, an elect, during the electoral campaign of that period? Yes. That was an issue between the candidates yes. who, were, who were Eisenhower, was Eisenhower running at that time? No, the bomber gap came up uh, with, uh, when Eisenhower became president. Actually, when he was running. Well, he ran in 1952. The bomber gap started in 1953. And when you say that we had overhead photography that helped resolve that issue, what was the photography done with? Well, what, the, what aircraft? I mean, this was before the U-2, certainly, or satellites. No, 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 this was a U-2. When did the U-2 start? July 4th, 1956. 1956. Yes. So by that time, the so-called bomber gap still persisted as an issue. Right. 
I have heard that the first flight of a U-2 took an, a number of, of photographs of the Soviet Union that so far exceeded anything we had ever had before with human assets or any other technical acquisition. I wonder if you remember the nature of that. Oh gosh, yes. Of that gap. Oh, that was that was so spectacular that we made these briefing boards, and you could see the uh, you could count the bombers not only uh, not only count the bombers but by type, and. Uh, and it was just such a joy that here was only about a hundred of us, and the major issue was the bomber gap. And within six weeks, we had said there's no bomber gap. And uh, and we took a, we took a uh, we took a vicarious. Uh, keep in mind, the agency at that time was a lot of New Englanders. Uh, uh, there were Yaleys, but they were from distinguished families. There were people like Dar Curtis, uh, Hank uh, Hank Harper. Uh, uh, there were just a number of wealthy people, Dar, Dar Curtis. There were wealthy people, and they were all, they were cliquish. They were uh, Yaleys, especially. And they thought that they were the cock of the walk. And boy, here we proved that uh, here was a bunch of uh, people that uh, didn't have these fancy names, and we proved them all wrong. And we, we, took a, we, we took some delight in kind of sticking it in their eyeballs every once in a while. <laughs> so there was, there was a little bit of, of uh, turf war within the agency, oh, gosh, so yes. to speak. Yeah. A healthy one, I would yeah. say. You know, later there was a, a so-called missile gap. It was a similar issue. I wonder if you could just describe that to well, us it all how started, it was resolved. It all started with Sputnik. When they fired Sputnik... That was 1957. Right. Right. But they also fired uh, an ICBM in 1956. But Sputnik just just uh, exploded. And, uh, and uh, there was just all this criticism, criticism of the government, criticism of Eisenhower, criticism of the, uh, the airplane designers, criticism of the educational institution. Everything was wrong. And the Soviets here were 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 beating us at, at our game. We were supposed to be the ones that uh, knew all all the scientific things, and uh, you know the Soviets then uh, were regarded as a bunch of uh, men with uh, beards and uh, and uh, and weren't very smart, and that 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 proved wrong. They had good scientists, but they didn't have the number or the type that we had indicated. And was the missile gap, did it, once again, did that play a role in politics? Well, what happened was uh, we couldn't find any missile sites. And yet they were beating the drums saying, well, we're not looking at the right places. And the first two satellite missions, there was questions about whether we were good enough to find a missile site. And... Uh, and that kind of bothered Eisenhower too. Are you sure? So, when when I talked it over with Mr. London, I said, "Well, we we got to do we got to search this mission all over again. We we'll search it, and we we took different photo interpreters uh, and and rotated them, made them look at different areas, and we still didn't find any missiles. But we were also we weren't in the in the in the Soviet heartland either. All the, the missions were always primarily." in Siberia and to the south. Then, though, in uh, June 19, uh, 1950, uh, 1961, uh, we found them. 
They were just under construction. They weren't hard. They were in soft configuration. It basically, the, the Soviet Union had a, had a big V2. It was a liquid-fueled uh, vehicle. It was in garages. They would take them out and launch them. But uh, here at the same time, though, we were building uh, uh, silos with the Atlas and the, uh, uh, trying to think of the second missile. And also, but, but we were getting ready to produce a, a, a solid missile, solid stage missile. I know I've heard you say, uh, Dino, that at the time of World War II, there were something on the order of six professional photo interpreters in the U.S. government. What would be a rough estimate of the number of photo interpreters in the U.S. government today? Probably around, I'd say proficient now, about 3,000. About 3,000. Yeah. And it developed into a real intelligence discipline. And I know you played a role in, uh, in bringing in the initial women to work on this, and they have developed into what you recently said is virtually half of the workforce. Let me ask you a question. The photo interpreter, the people who actually sit at tables, look at photos under the light, the so-called light tables, are sometimes referred to as PIs, photo interpreters. Could you just give us a brief description? What does a photo interpreter do? Well, the, the big thing is that man builds by, with patterns. And and he, he's and the military is even more circumspect. In other words, if if you find two artillery pieces, look for two more. There's four. There's always there's that type of a thing. But then also you have to you have to consider where you're working. In other words, uh, a dome building in, in uh, let's say uh, a dome building in Russia would mean something. That would normally be a radar, but you can't apply that to dome building when you're looking at things in the Middle East. You've got all kinds of dome building. So you have to know where you're working first. And then what you have to do is you have to learn the patterns of the previous deployments. And so what, uh, what had happened, the period, well, let me, let me just back up just a minute. When the airplane was invented, immediately people saw possibilities of putting a camera in. And during World War I, uh, Edward Steichen headed up the photo interpretation unit, and he proved that 60% of the information or more uh, was, was being gained from, from photo intelligence. But then, in the 1920s and 30s, it was dead. There was no training at all of photo interpreters. In 1939, the Navy was first. A memo was written by an admiral and said, are we ready for war? And the word, and the word came back, no, we're not. And so the attache in England was watching the British perform photo interpretation. And he asked if the British, if we couldn't send one photo interpreter to their school. And that was Captain Quackenbush, later Admiral Quackenbush. And he came back and convinced the Navy that they should have a photo interpretation school. They started it in, January, in December 
1941. So when World War II started, as far as the United States was concerned, they didn't have any except the men that trained themselves. And Eisenhower was one man that trained himself as a photo interpreter. So uh, you, look, you look around and there was nobody that either, there was no school and there was no, uh, no outstanding expert, the person that you could go to and say, uh, I guess you're the expert, you tell me what I'm seeing here. So then we, uh, one of the things that first came up is how big is it? So the science of photogrammetry, the mathematics came in. And so in World War II, you had developed a capability not only of better photo interpretation, but, but also of photogrammetry, of measurements. However, the war in, in Europe was completely different than the war in the Pacific. The war in the Pacific were islands that the latest information we had was 150 years old because there just nobody had visited these. Well, the, the people that had visited these islands was primarily uh, for uh, Lever Brothers, uh, for Copra, and, and that type of thing. But the war in, 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 in Europe, we were dealing with old civilizations. And so that it, the maps in, in, in Europe were fairly good, where the maps in the South Pacific were terrible. You know, the, the period, of course, of great interest to us was the whole, the vast expanse of the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. And, and I think that we wonder, you know, those of us who are not photo interpreters, how on earth do you start? In other words, when you're, when you're looking at the vastness of a, a, an area like the Soviet Union, you're looking for hidden military facilities, perhaps a missile site or something of that nature, and you're looking for it knowing that the Soviets have gone to great lengths to conceal it, to camouflage it. How do you even start? Well, we thought too that the Soviets would, there would, would be a massive camouflage effort in the Soviet Union. And strangely enough, Eisenhower raised it, not only Eisenhower raised it, but uh, Reagan would always raise it because during World War II, we had camouflaged our aircraft plants. And so they expected that we were gonna see a, a lot of camouflaging in the Soviet Union. And we were quite surprised. Once we had penetrated the uh, East Germany, there was camouflage activities in East Germany, but once we penetrated, once we got into the Soviet Union, the big plants, they were wide open. And, and, uh, and Eisenhower, was, it, was, it was hard for him to believe and that they didn't camouflage their, their aircraft plants like we did. Uh, incidentally, I was, I was stationed out in, in, in the uh, West Coast, and that was something to see this scrim miles of it over, over, over houses. And then they made it look like uh, there were houses on top of this wire scrim. Uh, I, I, I was stationed not too far from the Lockheed plant. And, but it was not only Lockheed, there was Douglas, there was uh, North American, there was uh, Boeing. They were all camouflaged with this scrim. Uh, it, it, it's a wire, it covers the area, and then you put ho fake houses and scars. And, and they would, uh, uh, at Lockheed, they would, they would move these fake cars around every day, and they would put <laughs> out uh, clothes, hang, uh, hang clothes, and uh, just... Uh, I'm surprised they didn't arrange an accident from time to time, so it looked like the <laughs> yeah. cars ran into each other. You know, you've mentioned uh, several, you've certainly mentioned Eisenhower and, uh, and now President Reagan. 
you had an opportunity during your career to brief, brief every president between President Eisenhower and President Ford. Can you just, in a sense, compare them a bit into how they dealt with the product you were presenting, which was overhead photography and your your analysis and actually, interpretation? Actually, I went clear up to uh, uh, to uh, Carter uh, to Bush. Oh, we include yeah. him. They yeah. Include a bunch no, of them. What they're talking about is that specifically taken at the White House, where I was, where I where I was, but I met with uh, each president was different. Eisenhower wanted things, uh, looking at, uh, he wanted, uh, he didn't care for, uh, Eisenhower wanted the photograph. He wanted to be briefed. He didn't want, he didn't want a lengthy document or anything like that. He wanted to be briefed. Tell me, show it to me. Look at the photograph and hear your presentation. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, what had happened was, the big thing was the briefing of Eisenhower was a national security meeting that took place every week. And Alan Dulles had to be prepped by Ting Sheldon and others before he would go to the meeting. Eisenhower trusted Dulles. The problem was, though, Dulles wasn't a photo interpreter, and Eisenhower was. So in the prepping, I, Lundahl would be briefing Dulles on nuclear energy, and he talking about reactors and very you know scientific, and Dulles wasn't getting it. So Dulles would say, you come with me. And so here's the thing. Those briefings took place at Eisenhower's desk, and there was no recording of it except my book. My book tells what happened at some of those meetings because Lundahl would come back and tell me what had happened. So Eisenhower, uh, Dulles didn't like to be chagrined in front of Eisenhower. So he would always, if he had a problem, he'd always bring his expert. Well, I've, I've, brought, I've brought Art Lundahl with me, or I've brought uh, Ting Sheldon with me to explain this. Or I brought, uh, he, he would bring in the covert people, too, also, the, especially uh, the people in the Middle East and, uh, and I know and in Indo, Indochina and in, in Indonesia and other places. But it was the weekly briefing. Eisenhower trusted Dulles implicitly. He said, he's my intelligence man, and he's a trained trained man. And how would you compare, for example, Eisenhower's approach to some of the other presidents you briefed? With President Kennedy, uh, Lundahl, uh, Lundahl would bring us along, and uh, we would brief Kennedy on specific things that he had questions on, not necessarily the imagery. Uh, Kennedy had asked a lot of questions. And not only not only that, but he was a voracious reader. And uh, so now Nixon was just the reverse. Nixon wanted wanted fact one, fact two, fact three, conclusion, lawyer fashion. And Ford was uh, was pretty much just tell it to me in in a few words. He didn't want he, he didn't want long studies or anything else. And 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 uh, Johnson was. Johnson was the most profane man that ever, every other word was SOB, and then not only SOB, but one of his favorite words was pissant, and uh, you know, he, that, that SOB pissant, one day we were there briefing him, and he said, who's going to have to see this, and he said, well, we're going to have to brief uh, uh, the Arkansas head of foreign relations, 
Oh, Faubus? Fulbright. Fulbright. And Johnson called him Senator Not So Bright. He had, he had uh, tags for everybody, and they were all nasty, you know. And, and uh, I, I told Lundahl, I said, I'd like to just walk in and say, hey, Senator Fulbright, you owe, and then all the string of profanity, you know. that. Well, but, Dino, I certainly appreciate the candidness of your presentation. It gives us a, a unique insight into the Oval Office during, uh, during the periods, at least, that you had an opportunity to be there. You know, you are considered uh, certainly the expert on the on the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and I know it's it's quite a, a, a lengthy narrative. You did a wonderful book on it called Eyeball to Eyeball, uh, which really stands as a monument to intelligence literature and and to the performance of intelligence. I wonder if you could just give us a few highlights from your own perspective from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, the big thing that I was trying to show there is how the intelligence was generated at the very bottom and how it percolated right to the top, and how the, 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 there was confidence in our interpretation. Now, uh, Lundahl mentioned that when he first briefed Kennedy that the, this, this is a missile site, Kennedy supposedly turned to him and said, are you sure? And, and Lundahl said, I'm sure this, Mr. President, as a photo interpreter, can be sure of anything. And you must admit that we have not led you astray in anything we've reported to you. And when Lundahl brought that back, that was another thing. When he, uh, I, I had kind of a 50-yard uh, uh, seat on history because I would prepare the briefings for Lundahl in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. He would go, uh, first he, he would brief McCone, but then he would brief the, the committee at, uh, XCOM committee at 10, and he'd come back and he'd say, McNamara's raising hell about this and, and uh, so forth. And so I would then try to get him the answers so that at 2 o'clock he would have the answers. But on, on, uh, September, on October the 26th is a day that I'll never forget because that morning I told Lundahl all 24 missile pads are operational meaning that we could have, within four to six hours, we could have uh, 20, 24 missiles coming at us. Those are the missile pads on Cuba, right? Cuba. Yes, okay. And Lundahl said, now I don't want to scare the hell out of them, but I want to make sure that they understand the threat. Because he was, he was a little afraid if I, if, if I said it, get, say it so strong, I could get a reaction from the military, they want to bomb, bomb them right away. So uh, around, around noon, we get word that the U-2 had been shot down. And from NSA, the NSA rep calls me and says, that's the Russian, that's, there's Russian, the Russian's uh, commands was, was given by, by Russian, in Russian languages. That afternoon, Khrushchev hadn't been seen in three days. And the shoot-down of the U-2 and Khrushchev not being seen three days. They were digging trenches all over the island. So Lundahl would, normally would brief Kennedy every night at about 7 o'clock. So I prepared the briefing for Lundahl. We went over it. When Lundahl came back and he told the president all these things that I just mentioned, and I said, how did it go? And he said, not good at all. And I said, what's the matter? 
and he said, the president is very concerned. I'll never forget that. And I called my wife that night, and I said, if I call you again, put the kids in the car and start out for Missouri, because I was convinced that we were going to be bombing. So that night, I uh, had a cot next to my, my desk, and I slept there. The next morning, I get a call from a foreign broadcast uh, intercept division. So we just got one line, and the Russians said they removed the missiles. And I said, he said, through Radio Moscow. I said, Radio Moscow, not through diplomatic traffic. He said, no, just Radio Moscow. So I said, have you briefed the president? He said, yes, we did, and he's on his way to Bass, though. I said, have you briefed McCone? He said, no, he's on, uh, he was at Bass, too. It's about 8 or 9 o'clock. So when McCone came out of the meeting, he said, get the goddamn planes out to see what was happening. We look at the, we look at the imagery, and there's no indication that they're pulling the things off. That afternoon, though, Kennedy said, give him another day. He went to Glenora, which kind of ticked a lot of people off that here's a crisis is peaking, and he's going to see his wife and, and kids. But the next, next day, the planes, we, we, the minute the planes were, com uh, were, uh, were landing, we were processing the film, and we looked, and by God, they were pulling the launchers off. And uh, that was a big sigh of relief that, uh, that they had done that. In retrospect, that was the closest that we came to war oh, with the gosh, Soviet yeah. Union. I, I, thought, I thought sure that Monday we would be bombing. And then I knew, I had worked on projects with the uh, basic intelligence planning guide and so forth. Strategic Air Command had 70 Russian cities scheduled for destruction in the event of war. And then, then, and talking to Sergei Khrushchev, we found out that they had three missiles at Placettes, one of them targeted on New York, one of them targeted on Chicago, and one of them targeted on Los Angeles. You know, Dino, uh, before we end here, one of the most valuable things I think you've, you've given us some insight into is the interaction that takes place between the president and whoever is briefing him on an intelligence subject. That is, not only do a number of the presidents listen intently, but they come back with questions, and, and it keeps that loop going yeah. of requirements uh, for the president, requirements generated by the situation. But I would like to just make sure we clarify one thing. Um, you've made frequent references, and I think it was Dr. Art Lundahl, wasn't it? And he hired you, and he was really your mentor throughout much of your career. Was yeah. he, in fact, the director of NPIC? He was the director of NPIC. And he, he, was my, he was my mentor, and not only my mentor, but uh, I believed in him and he believed in me. And, uh, and so uh, he, he, my opinion, I'd say now, this is a fact. This is true. Or this, uh, Jimmy Doolittle uh, uh, talked to me one day and he said, what you fellows, uh, we say that this is possible or probable, and he said, no, that's a, that's a wrong term. He said, because possible to one person is one thing and probable. What may, he said, say what may be. So uh, I was always very careful to lend all what I knew was firm and what, I, what, was, uh, what was not not firm. Because keep in mind, we always had the problem of clouds. You had the problem of a lot of things. But the other thing is this. Let me tell you about this. Now, I was 
I'm the, uh, my, my grandfather came over here without the proverbial pot, and he was a coal miner, and my dad was a coal miner for a while. And I look, and so my dad pushed the boys. One of my brothers is a, is, is, is a designer of caterpillars. Another brother is a, uh, was a superintendent of the rail lines. And, and my, dad, my dad drove us. But, I, <coughs> but here was a coal miner's son preparing notes and uh, briefing boards to the president. Only in America could that happen. Art, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. You're a wonderful American story. And you have certainly repaid this country with your service. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for your service to the country. And I want to end it uh, by mentioning again uh, the book that brought you here this afternoon, Eyes in the Sky, Eisenhower, the CIA, and Cold War by Dino Brugioni. It's just been a pleasure to have you here, Dino, and I hope we I hope you come back. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Long time. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's spycast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.